Let me read a couple of, of passages that came to my heart while we were singing and praying. Jeremiah chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 11. Has a nation switched gods, though they really aren't gods at all? Yet my people have exchanged their glory for what has no value. Be stunned at such a thing, you heavens. Shudder and quake, declares the Lord. My people have committed two crimes. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug wells, broken wells that can't hold water. This is the word of the Lord. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, running water, always replenishing, always fresh. All you do is go there. It never runs out. And they've replaced it with wells we got to fill. We got to dig them and we got to fill them and they don't satisfy. The idols that we use to try to fill our hearts, feast our hearts on. It came to me this morning in the time of, of singing, and it's a, it's a passage that every time, every year when I go to reach in Columbus, Ohio, when I go to the short-term mission training program, I get Father Heart of God week. And the lady who used to come right before me on Monday, she would teach them, and she would read this passage from Jeremiah chapter 2, and then she would send a handout through the, through the whole room, and people would look at the list and What are your cisterns? What are your idols? What are your empty wells that you built, that you have to prop up and you have to service in the hopes of filling your needs, but they don't? What are your idols, in other words? The places you come to satisfy, trust in, hope in, to bring you what you think you need. And so they go through this checklist of, well, we would call them sins. But sometimes our sins feel pretty respectable to us. Have you ever noticed that when the Lord's trying to convict you of something, you dull that voice? And when you are about to do something you know is wrong, you have to put God out of your mind first so that your conscience stops bugging you quite so bad. And then, have you noticed this? The more you do it, the less you hear that voice anymore. And the less wrong you feel about it, and the more you do it, the more dull, until you no longer even think it's wrong. And now, like I said, your heart's job is to choose. Your mind's job is to rationalize that choice. Which is why it's so important for us to have a pure heart. Which is why it's so important for us to have a relationship first. Because whatever we love, whoever we love, our brain will get busy telling us why that's the right choice. So when people yoke themselves to the wrong things, when we yoke ourselves to the wrong things, our brain gets busy saying, it's not wrong. It's not wrong. It's okay. I need this. It's going to be all right. And then when these moments like today happen, when somebody else fearlessly says, it's actually not okay, and I want to fix it, then we go, Ah, and suddenly we become aware of the stuff we knew we were playing games with in our heart, justifying. Isn't that fascinating? 
We know so much more than we think we know or claim to admit that we know. It says, my people have committed two wrongs. They've forsaken the spring of living water. Fresh, clean, clear, satisfying, but probably difficult. Difficult to get to, difficult to prioritize, painful to stay exclusively committed to. Have you ever noticed how in, the, in like thousands of years ago, humans understood that for me to live, something else has to die? And that any relationship is costly. That for anything to have life, something has to go through death. But nowadays, we don't even think that way. Nowadays, things just come to us because we're so affluent. And you go, affluent? What are you talking about? I don't have any money. I know. And in a weird way, in a credit society, you don't have to have money to have stuff. We just have debt and stuff. But we still have stuff. Isn't that weird? Did you know how, how many humans are on planet Earth right now? Around 8 billion. It's Matthew, right? You, you said that? Do you know, like 100 years ago, how many humans were on planet Earth? About 100 years ago. How about, let's say 120 years ago, like in the year 1900. Way less. Way less. Like the most humans that the planet was able, ever able to sustain before modern petroleum-based agricultural spread, pulling fossil fuels out of the ground and burning them in one massive intense burst, which is what we're doing right now. A billion. It's pro- we're probably going to have nine billion when we peak. The crazy thing is, the planet can actually support that for now. It, it really can. And with the level of affluence that's never been seen in human history, it's more people have more than they've ever had in human history. But have we lost the fact that built into anything worth doing is cost? And I don't even want to use the word cost because then it comes back to the whole marketing mindset, which is a very American way to think about everything. Everything in terms of market, everything in terms of money. The older way of thinking about it would be sacrifice. If I'm going to be faithful to my wife, other stuff has to die. If I'm going to be a good dad, something has to die for something else to live. If I'm going to be a loyal friend, something's going to have to die. It's unavoidable. If I'm going to be faithful to God, stuff's going to have to die. And sometimes, I don't know if you've heard, have you ever been to a church where they have an altar call? You raise your hand if you're like, yeah, that's, that's my language. I think that's, uh, that's probably language that is less and less common. Did, you're like, well, how is this an altar? You all know what an altar is in the Bible, right? It's not a, it's not a, a set of steps in front of a sanctuary where we sing songs. What happens at an altar? We take a living animal with emotions that can feel pain and has a, like a family and is terrified 
and trusts us to take care of it, and we kill it. We slit its throat, and it screams through a hole in its neck, and it bleeds out on the ground and goes through emotional, physical trauma that is, that is honestly really hard on anyone who has an empathy, empathetic mindset. When I was at Bible college, my African friend, we took a goat, put it in a Volkswagen, took it over to John Don Showalter's house. That goat knew something was wrong the whole way there. It was shaken. My friend Pete's funny, so he led the goat in a sinner's prayer on the way there. And then my friend took a knife and cut her throat. And she screamed through the hole in her throat, and she was alive way longer than I was comfortable with. It took, a, it took a minute to bleed her out. And she tasted bad, too. Her meat was old and not fun to eat, stiff and chewy. Had to chew it way too long, and I thought, is it worth it? It was the first time I was, what, 19 years old? It's the first time in my life that I had to be there when my food made the sacrifice. We're so separated. I mean, you grow up on a farm. Grandma used to tell Dad, go get supper. Go pick which chicken we're eating tonight. And boom, boom, boom. You know, dead. Right? And now I see people make friends with their chickens. And their chickens are like their little pets. And they pet them. And they're little babies. And then if a bad, bad bird comes, a hawk, right? Then we freak out. Because we have an emotional connection to these birds. But you have no emotional connection to your chicken nuggets. Y'all, that's the same dang thing. I'm saying we're insulated from sacrifice. We're insulated from the fact that for me to live, something has to die. And for anything worth doing in life to live, something else has to die. But we like to say, well, there's a cost to everything. There's trade-offs. And I'm like, the Bible knows that, but the phraseology would be sacrifice. And what I'm saying is, sometimes we don't feel like something dying, and we let the wrong things live. We have mercy on the wrong things and end up sacrificing things we should be protecting. I'm not against hunting, sir. This message isn't an anti-hunting <laughs> message. I, let me give you another passage. In my digital phone Bible, which is not my favorite. What if they would make page noises on the app that like when I click things it goes and then what if it goes to the wrong place and can't find what I pointed to just like me in the real world where is that where was that what book was that did I say Colossians 2 I didn't say it out loud I just said it inside myself I'm just giving you the stuff that's on my heart We have a spring. We have a spring that brings us everything we need and many things we want, but not how we think that they should be given. God says he's going to satisfy the desires of our heart, but he often does it in a way that's not what we would choose. You with me? He's faithful to all of his promises, just not in the timing or way that we would prefer. He's good, and what he does is good, but some of what he allows is not good. And he's not afraid of you and I suffering. It's a part of the plan. 
He's not afraid for you and I to go through suffering. He wants us to lean into him in the midst of suffering so that suffering doesn't make us bitter, it makes us better. Are you with me? I guarantee you everyone in this room has stuff they're currently going through that trusting Jesus is costly for everyone in this room. Not one of us has all their ducks in a row. Guarantee it. Most of us have heavy burdens, griefs, sadnesses, disappointments, things we're carrying, and temptations we're, we're, we're weakly walking through in areas where we're like, man, I feel like I'm failing. And if that's you right now, you're normal. You're normal. Every one of us, in other words, is called to walk by faith and not by sight. Every one of us. And to stay faithful to our God and not do the same thing they did in Jeremiah 2 means there's some cost. There's some things that are going to have to die. All right, Colossians 2. I'll just start at verse 1, but I'm going to stop at verse 3. I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and those in Laodicea. And for all who haven't known me personally, my goal is that their hearts would be encouraged and united together in love so they might have all the riches of assurance that come with understanding. So that they might have the knowledge of the secret plan of God, namely Jesus Christ. Verse 3. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid in Christ. This week I, I watched the guys talk about seven things the Stoics want to teach us. The Stoics were philosophers who lived a couple thousand years ago. And every single piece of wisdom that the Stoics had to give us, I was like, man, that is so good. That is so good. That is so good. And then I thought, after I listened to the talk, all it was was more rules. The Stoics want you to not worry. The Stoics want you to chill out and be grateful. The Stoics want you to remember that you're going to die and that, therefore, you shouldn't worry about anything that you can't control. The Stoics want you to... And I listened, and all I heard was, everything was wise, everything had wisdom, but it's yet another to-do list. And I, and I sat there going... Nothing was unscriptural in the list, but the problem is, we all know that. We just don't do it. How different Christianity is. How different Christianity is. Our faith doesn't give us a whole boatload of rules and say, good luck. I guess if you're really a good person, you'll be able to do all these things. It gives us a spring of living water. It gives us Jesus, a person who's alive. It gives us an interactive relationship with the living God who talks back, who answers prayer, that we walk with in the cool of the day and have conversation with, and he knows what we need. And through communion with him, a living being, through feasting on his voice, he'll give us whatever we need. In Jesus, in Christ, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Without studying the Stoics, you can be as wise as the Stoics. Who remembers the extraordinary boldness of the apostles when they're arrested because they refuse to back down? I think it's like, is it Acts chapter 3? They, they pull them in for the Sanhedrin, and they're like, you're in trouble. 
You guys are naughty. How dare you? We told you to quit it and you didn't stop. And they say, you judge for yourselves whether it's right for us to obey you instead of obeying God. And the council takes a recess and they're like, what are we going to do with these boys? Everybody's for them in the crowd. What do we do? And it says they noticed the extraordinary boldness and the wisdom with which the apostles answered. And they recognized they were unschooled, ordinary men. You remember the next part? And they noted that they had been with Jesus. I bet, say it, it's four, I was wrong. It's the first time I've ever been wrong in my life. Did you guys know that? 413? Did y'all hear that? The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. Uneducated common men. Boldness and wisdom, power and love. What's unique about what you have that other faiths don't have? It's him. Remember in the, in, in the Old Testament, Moses, and I think it's Exodus chapter 33, but apparently I can't trust my memory. God's mad, and he says, I'm going to send an angel with y'all, but if I have to go with y'all, you're just really bad traveling. It's like, have you ever been those parents in the front seat, and you're just like, I'm going to turn this car around if you guys don't stop bickering and whining. That's God in the Old Testament going through the wilderness. I'm going to send you on a bus. And Moses, what does Moses say? You remember this? I'm not going if you don't go. If your presence doesn't go with us, I'm not taking another step. God, without your presence, we'll be just like all the other nations. It's your presence that makes us different than all the other nations. It's your presence. It's, you, it's Christ in you that's unique, that's different. Where, how do you access this, this, this spring that actually satisfies where your broken cisterns that you have to dig and you have to fill? It's Jesus. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and he's available. But to, but to take time, to take the time To drink from that spring is inconvenient, it's costly, it takes sacrifice. To prioritize him is costly. And stuff has to die for that to live. Because stuff will crowd it out. Now, I don't know what's crowding it out in your life, crowding him out in your heart. But you do, if you're honest. I went, to a, I went to a meeting a few years back. Oh, man, is this what we're going to really do, though, Lord? Dang it. Oh, shoot. But I don't want to. 
<laughs> I want to tell stories where I don't look bad, though, Lord. <laughs> Can't we tell on my virtues? Why do we got to tell on my sins? That's not right. Fine. Dang it. It's not fair, though, because you ain't got no sins. So when you. <laughs> Well, he said, well, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. So it actually, so, okay. I grew up in a, in a church culture that said alcohol is always bad and never acceptable for a Christian. And when I was a, a kid, one of the preachers gave his fiery message that basically said, if you drink a drop of alcohol, you will be in a fiery car crash and the electrical cables are going to burn your family, your body's going to burn up. And your family's going to come collect you the smoldering ashes, and it'll all be because of beer. Come here into the altar and promise you're never going to drink. And I was like. And then I read in my Bible that alcohol is a blessing. Wine is a blessing from the Lord, and Jesus drank it, and Paul drank it. And, and I said, wait a minute. Drunkenness is a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. Addiction is an even worse, deeper hold on your life. It's a sin to use your freedom in a way that harms somebody else who isn't as free as you are. And it's a sin if you decide it's wrong for you to try to yoke other people with your legalism. So there's five truths, right, on, on alcohol. It's a blessing. It's a blessing, right? In the kingdom to come, Jesus said there's going to be wine. Every, every, every Israelite's going to have their own vine. That ain't for Welch's grape juice, family. Jesus didn't turn the water into Welch's. Nah, it's alcoholic wine, the strongest of the bunch, right there in John 2. And they were already drunk, and he still gave them wine. That, that shakes my little theology a little bit. But wine is a blessing. Drunkenness is sin. That's point number two. Drunkenness is sin, and it'll make you sin in other ways. Addiction is slavery, and God wants you free. Um, if, you can't, if you can't use your freedom to drink in a way that doesn't harm others, then you're not using it right. And if you can't handle it, don't yoke other people down with legalism. Those are the five biblical convictions that I came to. In other words, my church culture was not biblical. It was liberal toward the Bible, meaning it took, it took, uh, it, it took what it wanted to be true and made it pretend it was true. So I decided, okay, I'm supposed to be able to do like Jesus did, drink wine without ever becoming drunk or sinning at all to the glory of God. So each night, and this, I was a pastor here when I was doing this, I would drink a little alcoholic beverage. I would not get drunk. And I would even lift it and say, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. And I would do this as my nightly ritual. And I was not getting drunk. I was managing my freedom. But I noticed something. My conscience was constantly bugging me about it. And I thought, this, is must, this must be my religious upbringing still bothering me. That's what I was assuming was the problem. And I started talking to God about it. Like, if this, if I, I see in the Bible what the truth is, and yet my conscience is still bugging me, what's going on? Because when you grow up in a religious family, you kind of got to find your own path and learn how to actually be biblical and not just accept your church tradition. There's a lot of dumb, unscriptural traditions in, in the American church. Yeah. Like, we don't have elders and deacons. Like, like, the Bible says we have, like, it's a long story. Let's not get into it all. So I'm trying to find, I'm trying to be a faithful Bible, Bible guy. 
I'm not going to sin, but I'm not going to let human tradition rule me. I'm going to be a spirit God, spirit of God and Bible man. Are you with me so far? So I show up at this thing with Heidi, Heidi Baker, and she's praying. She doesn't even preach. She doesn't even preach. She gets on her knees and she prays, and she divides the group into three groups. And she says, you know, there's three kinds of groups in here tonight. I can't do her accent. She's got a weird accent. And she describes three kinds of hearts in the room. Some of the hearts are just desperately hungry, and some of the hearts are a little bit proud about what's going on. And some hearts have a been there, done that attitude. They've seen it all. And it's good for the next generation to get miracles and get excited about Jesus and flood the altar. And I did that in my heyday. But, but you know, my time's passed. And, you know, she's describing these three hearts. And each time she describes a heart, she gets on her knees and she prays for like five, 10, 15 minutes. I can't tell. A repentance prayer from within that heart to just help us, whoever, whichever one we have, Get stuff off and get right. Get free. And the weirdest thing happened, you guys. I got free. And when, until I got free, I didn't know I was bound. And that's the strange thing I'm trying to tell you. I was trying to solve in my head, what's this little tinge of my conscience? What I'm doing is biblical. So why is my conscience bothering me? Well, what you're doing wasn't biblical. You were framing it a certain way. This is what was revealed to me when I got free. Because here's what, here's what was going on. She's like, if there's anything you're unwilling to surrender tonight, you're not free. Whatever that thing is in your heart that you immediately think of as not that, that's what's keeping you from being free. And I thought, you're going to think this is silly. This is why I'm embarrassed. I love alcohol. I love the taste. I love the smell. I love the feeling of it going down. I love the anticipation. All day long, I look forward to my little, my little, my little ritual. I never get drunk. I'm always careful not to cross the lines of the Bible rules. Are you, you starting to catch what's going on here? I stayed within the letter of the rules but my heart had turned us, had created this sanctuary that I deserve good feelings at the end of the day. And this was my little sanctuary. And it wasn't until I realized when she said, if there's anything you're unwilling to surrender, you're not free. And I started to go, okay, I hear loud and clear. I surrender alcohol to you. My wife and kids, they were already surrendered. My church, my whatever, my fear of dis human disapproval was already surrendered, which you have to re-surrender when it comes back up, by the way. And I prayed and I surrendered alcohol. I went home. Took one look at the bottle of gin. This is an embarrassing story. Just bear with me. And my case of beer. And I dumped all... I think I... No, I maybe gifted the beer to the neighbors or something. And I took the gin... And I set it aside. I sat and I listened and I said, before I did that, I sat and I listened. Yeah, see, there you go, sit and listen. Instead of figuring out, sit and listen, not the same thing. And the only thing the Lord has said to me since that year till now, and that's like a decade ago, is put it away. That's all he's ever said on the topic. By the way, he said it to me. He didn't say it to you. I don't know what he's saying to you. My dad and mom, they enjoy alcohol to the glory of God. I've never seen them drunk. You might do that as well. 
If there's beer in your fridge and you're glorifying Jesus, you're, 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 you're a classical, traditional Christian on the topic. Americans have a unique, weird, hybrid flavor of, of stuff. If you have an alcoholic in your family and you're hypersensitive on the topic, 100% understand where you're coming from and why you don't touch it. I get it. Or if you have a past and you have an addictive gene and you simply can't handle it and you don't touch it, I understand that as well. So anyway, I sit and I listen and he says, put it away. So I walk, I walk over and I put it out on the porch. What's, what do you think happened that week to my prayer life? Bro, my prayer life went into high gear that week. It was like everything was clicking. And I've heard similar stories where God told, told somebody, uh, in order for your heart not to be violent towards any human, you might want to include animals in that. And the person became a vegetarian. And the second they became a vegetarian, their Holy Spirit power went up to another level. And that guy has no, he has not, he does no, he has no agenda to make anyone in the room a vegetarian. He doesn't care about that. He says, keep eating meat, that's fine. I'm talking about whenever you say yes to what the Lord's asking of you and you walk in it, you click up to a higher level. Like John the Baptist, he didn't touch wine, he didn't cut his hair, he took a Nazarite, I mean, it seems to me that he took a Nazarite vow from birth and was filled with the Spirit from birth. It's a Nazarite vow, it's not an every Jew vow. There are special callings for people that you don't try to impose on everyone else. What business of it, of yours is it anyway what somebody else is about? They have a conscience and they have a Bible of their own and they have the Spirit speaking a different calling and a different gift mix. So let them out of your... It's not about that. It's about you and Jesus. Like he says when, when you know, Peter's like, is John going to live forever? What's going to happen to John? You just said, I'm going to be crucified. What about John? And Jesus says, mind your business, boy. What's that to you? You follow me. So that week, I, I, put it on the, I put it on the porch. That week, all he said, put it away. And my prayer life went. Well, it took, all it took was one week for me to be like, wow. He didn't say anything else. I went out. I, I gave away the beer, I think, to the neighbors because it was some fancy kind. And I took the, bottle, the big, massive bottle of gin that I got from the foreign guy at the one shop over by the New Teen Challenge place now. And I went, and I turned it upside down. Guys, I can still hear the glug, 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 glug. It, took like, it felt like it took 15 minutes. It probably took one. But it was like glug, 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 glug. And I can smell it. And there it goes on the ground. And I haven't touched a single drop of alcohol since. And my, I'm around people who do. I try not to be weird about it. You know what I mean? Like we go out to eat. My wife has a margarita. She never finishes it, which bothers me from a financial point of view, as you know. (laughs) She's never been drunk. One morning, she put Kahlua in her coffee before she came to church because she didn't even know it had alcohol. She didn't care about the alcohol. She liked the flavor. So she's at mom and dad's house, and she's like, where's that stuff you put in my coffee? We're Sunday morning. We're getting ready to go to church. And she asked my dad, where's that stuff you put in the coffee? And he's like, you mean Kahlua? And she goes, I don't know. It was a big bottle. I had a thing on it. And he's like, oh, he hands it to her. And she dumps a whole bunch in there. And she's got her little, little insulated thing. And she's standing there praising the Lord in church that day. And just, she doesn't even know. She has no grid for any of that stuff being right or wrong or whatever. Dad thought that was the best thing ever. Dad would have bought a T-shirt of that event. It was so exciting to my dad. 
My dad thought that was hilarious. So, look, guys, what I'm trying to say is it's not about whether, it's, whether it makes sense in your mind. Can I get away with this? There's not a Bible verse that says don't smoke. But you know it's bad for your health. Come on. There's all sorts of stuff that our brains are so good we can justify. And at the end of the day, it's not about a book of rules. It's not about a bunch of rules and laws on a piece of paper because we ain't got a dead God. He's not dead. It's not like other religions. It's not Buddha. It's not Muhammad. It's not the other stuff. It's not the philosophers. It's not stoicism. It's not self-help therapy and psychology. He's a spring of living water. He's got all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in him because he's alive and he talks and he thinks and he feels and he breathes and he moves and he helps. He's real. He walks with you in the cool of the day and he counsels you with his wisdom. He's alive. And forever, I, I was singing up here today, you're the answer and I'm the question. And you might go, well, that sounds like you're full of doubts and fears. Yeah! Sounds like you're tossed to and fro and, and you're tempted and you feel weak. Yes! Welcome! Stop asking me how I'm doing. Tell me how I'm doing. And tell me it's good. Tell me he's got it. Like I said at the funeral yesterday, we had a, hosted a big old funeral yesterday. And I was reporting to some of the people there who had been at the Haitian funeral for the guy where the family was grieving so loud and passionately that the one girl went out the side door and vomited. Dude, I said, that woman was breaking my heart. They were calling for him to wake up. The conversation we had yesterday was, the one guy said, oh, that funeral freaked me out more than any other funeral because they were begging him to get up. And, and the one guy was like, oh, I was terrified he was gonna. And I'm like, if that man would have got up, I'd have run out of the boat. No, I'm not. It's a zombie. And I said, I said, yeah, I remember the sermon that guy preached. At this, it was like a really long sermon. And, and I was like, he's like, the guy, all he loved to do was play dominoes and do Bible study. But we have no idea if he's in heaven. And so all of y'all should try harder. And I was just, I'm back here. So after the message was over, yeah. I went up to the translator and I said, here's what I heard this morning. You're all going to burn. Try harder. And the translator got the funniest grin. And he kind of, am I allowed to say that's, and he nods and he goes, yeah, that's pretty much what the guy said. <laughs> I didn't ask, how does it feel to translate a sermon you disagree with? I said, you know what? I don't need to hear try harder. I need to hear let it go. It's enough. Let it go. Let it go. Whatever it is, let it go. Jesus already took that for you. Let him. Let him love you. Let him lead you. Let it go. Surrender it. Let him be enough. Are you with me? My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water. And then they carved out, and now they have to service these broken cisterns that they got to fill and they can't hold water. When in Him, in Him, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything you need, it's in Him. Everything you need, it's in Him. So however He leads you, don't be looking over your shoulder at anybody else. 
And don't just be looking simple at the theology of it. The Holy Spirit has a path for you that's more than just theologically correct. He knows your heart. See, he knew that even though I was well within the bounds of what the Bible says about alcohol, that I had crafted a little sanctuary, and he wanted to be my sanctuary. Like, yours might be baseball. If watching baseball dulls your passion for God, then even though it's not in the Bible, then for you, it's an idol. I mean, shoot, I don't know what your examples are, but whatever yours are. If whatever you're doing dulls your passion for God, whether it's clearly in the Bible or not, surrender it. And some of the things that we think we have to do are actually not necessary. I remember my friend Davey saying, sometimes he fasts from reading the Bible. And I thought, what? I said, what are you talking about? I thought, this guy's full of crap. You can't fast from reading the Bible. What are you talking about? He goes, yeah, I read the Bible every day with a disciplined thing. And sometimes what I notice is my reading the Bible has become a method, a dead method. And so sometimes to kill my legalism and make my heart come back to faith and freshness with God, I'll fast from Bible reading and I'll spend that time doing something different and and sort of relax into him again, relationship again. And when when I get the sense that, that I'm ready, then I'll get back into disciplined reading. He's paying attention to Jesus. Chances are, if something you're doing with him is boring to you, it's probably also that boring to him. Find a fresh way. Find another way. Keep him clear. Lord, you made me tell that story, and I didn't like that. I've seen other kids do that too, man. And I'm saying kids as 20s and 30-year-olds who are navigating freedom. Like an Amish person that thought if they put on a pair of jeans, they would immediately have sex with 30 prostitutes. And then they put on jeans and they realize they're just them. I'm still just me. Nothing magical happened. In other words, navigating freedom when you grew up in legalism, sometimes you think, as soon as I get over here into the freedom land, all hell's going to break loose. Well, it's not as immediate as that, but now you've got to learn how to walk as, in freedom. Because when you're not in freedom, you just ask me, and Tim tells you what to do. I'm serious. And when you're not in freedom, you tell me to tell the other people what to not do, what scares you. Pastor Tim, you've got to tell the people to do this, because when they don't do this, it scares me. Get some Bible verses and use some guilt. Get some emotion going. And I'm like, no, no bro, I'm not going to do that. I trust, see, here's what I'm not interested in, guys. I'm not interested in people who can, who can clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inwardly are full of dead men's bones. I'm into heart transformation from Jesus on the inside because you hear his voice and you know his love and what's really going on in you is really connecting with what's really going on in him. And that when you sin, you have good conversations. You say, why? like we said last week, why did I do that? What lie was I believing that empowered the temptation? What need was I attempting to meet apart from you? 
And how do you want to actually take care of me and fill me up so that those needs are actually met in you? And then the heart gets transformed. Now, now we're dealing with sin at the root level instead of at the fruit level, instead of just mowing the weeds so that from a distance it looks like a nice yard. Right? You get me? I'm into heart transformation. Not a bunch of rules that control people and leave them wicked on the inside. So this morning, this was really healthy. And healthy is also scary. Healthy is scary because in God's kingdom, we end up looking worse and getting better for a while before we look better. But in the not free, we look better and get worse. And here's how you can tell you're headed the wrong direction. The more you're clamped down on behavior modification, the more mad you are at the other people for not behaving. The thing that you resent having to do, you resent others for not having to do. Why do I have to serve and nobody else serves? Why do I have to tithe and nobody else tithes? Why am I here on Wednesday night and nobody's here on Wednesday night? Or whatever it is. Instead of the joy of, I get to serve Jesus. I'm, I'm not, that's just all that's craziness. Static. Are you with me? I think that's more than I wanted to say. It's 12, it's 1226. Okay. Go ahead and stand up. So what is on your heart that when I say surrender to Jesus, when I say surrender to Jesus, what is on your heart that you are saying, I don't want to surrender that. Come back to me if that distracted you. Bless her. It's all good. She and I will probably talk later. It'll be fine. What is on your heart that when I say surrender, you go, yeah, but not that. All right, that's the thing. That's the thing. I'm going to pray, and I want you to pray using your own words and your own heart at the same time. Abba, I trust you. I trust you. I don't want to give that up. I don't feel like giving that up, but I trust you. And your way is sacrifice. Your way is something has to die for something better to live. And I want the something better. You're worth more. God, I love you more. I want you more than that. In your own words right now, lay it down. Release it. Open your hands. Tell him, I give it up, God. I give it up to you. If he wants to give it back, that's on him. But right now, your part is to give it up and get free. I return to you, God. I return to you, God. I return to you, God.
show me what you want, Father, and show me what to do. You say all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in you. That means you have the answers to what I'm facing. You can counsel me. Counsel me. Father me. It's like, it's like there's these questions that say, I've never, no one ever taught me how, God. No one ever taught me how. I never had enough modeling. No one ever was healthy enough to know how to teach me how to navigate. I don't even have an example to follow, so I need you to father me. You father me. You fill in the gaps. You counsel me. I need your wisdom. Can you say amen? Amen. 